guys, we have started a new series that has to do with slaying giants. And if you remember, as the God's people were getting ready to go into the promised land, they were scared of these intimidating giants, and they felt like little grasshoppers. Well, last week we looked at the giant of conformity. Man, everybody has to look alike, talk alike, be alike, and that doesn't mean to be like Christ. And this week, we're actually going to look at the giant of silence. When should we keep our mouth shut, and when should we let people know who our God is? And when should we take a stand? And so, as we jump into that, I ask you to turn to Matthew chapter 14 as our text this morning. If I may, if you'll stand in our great God's honor, I'm going to read the first 10 verses and go into the message. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the reports about Jesus, and he said to his attendants, This is John the Baptist. He has risen from the dead. That is why miraculous powers are at work in him. Now Herod had arrested John and bound him and put him in prison because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. For John had been saying to him, It's not lawful for you to have her. Herod wanted to kill John, but he was afraid of the people because they considered him a prophet. On Herod's birthday, the daughter of Herodias danced for them and pleased Herod so much that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she wanted. Prompted by her mother, she said, Give me here on a platter the head of John the Baptist. The king was distressed, but because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he ordered that her request be granted and had John beheaded in the prison. Let's pray. Father, I, I thank you that although we don't live in the easiest world either, we think about this you know, crazy situation with a king and, and his brother's wife and all that broke loose, Father, that was not a part of your vision. And, and you're a guy who stood up to just tell the truth, Lord. And Father, I, I pray that you infuse us with your courage when we need to say, this is just not right, and stand for you. So, so, Father, just guide us as we take time to, to look at, Father, this excerpt um, from the life of John the Baptist that ended in the death of John the Baptist. And, Father, how we, too, uh, Lord, need to be ready to stand for what's most important, Lord. And so, Father, anyway, just guide and lead us as we look at your word. In Christ's name we pray. research team came together they wanted to study how people think so they had some people in separate rooms and they would have uh, different types of leaders come before them the first leader they had come before them was an engineer and um, as they began to talk uh, they asked the engineer the professional said what is two plus two he said before the people, he said, well, two plus two is four. It's always four. It never changes. That's a sure thing. 
So then uh, the speaker that spoke to each group next was the architect. In describing four, they said, well, it depends upon how you break down the equation, although it always ends up in four. It could be two plus two, or it could be one and a half plus two and a half, or it could be one plus one plus one plus one equals four. So the picture there is there are different forms in order to achieve the same goal. And then the third person who came before them in the rooms was a lawyer. And the question was, what is the truth? And he said, whispered in each one's ear, what do you want it to be? And what we face today is a culture and a world where people are looking around asking the question, what do they want the truth to be? What do I say to this person? What do I say to that person? And how do I make sure that I keep everybody happy and that I don't cause strife and that I say the truth that they're inclined to want to hear? And in the midst of this type of culture, God says that Jesus Christ, my son, is the truth, is the way, is the life. And then he said in his famous prayer, Jesus, in John 17, 17, he said, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. And we are called to speak the truth in love. That's, that's what Ephesians 4 talks about. You can do, it's hard to do both. Oftentimes, it's one or the other. People speak the truth, but they're offensive and there's no love. It's my way or the highway kind of thinking. But then there's also the problem of those who speak love, but not the truth. The key is that both are equally important. It needs to be the truth in love, and that is a calling that God gives to each of us. As a matter of fact, it says in Ecclesiastes 3, 1 through 10, that section, it says, you know, there's a time to speak, and there's a time to be silent. We know that through the Old Testament, God's prophets oftentimes would have to speak up in a time where it would have been easy to be silent. Elijah faced Ahab and Jezebel. That was not easy for him to speak up then, nor was it easy for Samuel to confront King Saul, nor was it easy for Daniel when he had to con confront Belshazzar the king, or when you had the guys in the fiery furnace. They could have easily said what uh, the king wanted them to say and escape the fiery furnace, but they didn't. Or Nathan, who looked directly at King David and said, you are the man, you are guilty. In a dangerous place, but they spoke the truth. Edmund Burke had said, all that is necessary for evil or triumph is for good men to do nothing. God is looking for some courage today out of all of us. The book 1984, it seems like as time goes on, I hear more and more about that book by George Orwell that speaks of a big brother and of people in power watching everything that we do and seeking to gain control over us, total, complete control. In the book, there's this quote by Orwell. He says, 
if liberty means anything at all, it means the right to tell people what they don't want to hear. Man, everybody gets so easily offended. And yet, where is that concept that I, I grew up hearing? Free speech means that you have a right to say it, whether I agree with it or not. And yet, that seems to be disappearing. In Matthew chapter 14, we find a, a prophet who speaks what a king doesn't want to hear. And as a result of that, he would lose his life. So as we jump into the text, let's first look at this guilty politician here who's struggling with guilt. And we learn about him that he said to those around him, the attendants, this is John the Baptist, he's risen from the dead. That is why miraculous powers are at work in him. He looked at Jesus and he was reminded of John the Baptist. Now, a little background here. What had happened in the life of John the Baptist and Herod that had brought this to pass? Well, to begin with, there are several Herods that are mentioned in the Bible. Normally when we read Herod, what comes to mind is Herod the Great, who was this guy's dad, and he was quite a character. He had quite a temper. He killed one of his wives, he killed two of his sons, he killed several that were on the Sanhedrin, which was the Jewish Supreme Court, because they didn't agree with him. He was a dangerous character. And then when he heard that there was going to be born the king of the Jews, he thought, I am the king of the Jews, and he began to go after those little boys, those babies, that might take his place his throne. But this is not talking about him. It's talking about one of his sons. You see, when he died, the empire was split up between his boys. There was one son that got half the empire, and then there were two other sons that got a quarter each of the empire. And one of those is the guy that is mentioned here. It's his son, Herod the Great Son, Herod Antip Antipas. Herod Antipas got control of the area of Galilee, which was a place where Jesus did a lot of his miracles, which was a place where Jesus taught and impacted a lot of lives. And notice what it says. He is thinking back to the confrontation with John the Baptist. And in verse 4, we're told that in that confrontation... <laughs> He just told him, uh, John the Baptist just told Herod Antipas, it's unlawful for you to have your brother's wife. I mean, this thing, it was like a salty, saucy reality TV show today. I mean, you, you had this guy, Herod Antipas, who saw his brother's wife, uh, Herod Philip, and he's, man, I like her, and so he divorced his wife, as a matter of fact, who was the daughter of another king, king of Arabia, and he wanted to kill him, and so you had all this kind of tension going on, and Rome stepped in to protect Herod Antipas. And so then after that, he managed to lure her away, Herodias, 
to him to become his wife. And in the midst of all this craziness that was going on, um, we discover that he had a daughter who had learned some of her uh, immoral ways, and we'll talk about that in a little while. And then John the Baptist said, guys, this isn't right. King Herod, I know you think you're the most powerful one in the world, but you're not. This is wrong. And when you think about Herodias, the kind of woman that she was, she certainly wasn't innocent either. Uh, most scholars say that her daughter was between 14 and 16 years old. She certainly wasn't up for Mother of the Year award to have her 14 to 16-year-old daughter to dance provocatively in front of Herod. And uh, as you read the text, it gives the idea that, that lusts were bridled up within him. And, and this is his stepdaughter dancing before him. And, and so that the depth of the immorality, and he was confronted with his sin, and he simply did not want to hear it. And, and I want you to notice in verse 9 of our text. As he's looking back and he's thinking about all this, she, his stepdaughter danced before him, aroused him, then he said, I will give anything that she wants, and then she requested to give me the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And it says the king was distressed. Another translation, basically, he was sorry. There was something within him that knew this isn't right. This, this stuff is, is crazy, but there wasn't repentance. Matter of fact, it's interesting. As you go through this text here, you see that he was a typical politician. He wanted to keep his power. He wanted to make sure he was safe. And so the main thing he was after was security. Matter of fact, you look in verse 2, he's afraid of Jesus and what Jesus is doing that he may have his power ripped away from him in verse 3 he's afraid of his wife Herodias as she had all this influence upon him in verse 5 he's afraid of the crowds he's afraid of the other people that are out there and in verse 9 he's afraid of his peers the dinner guests that were before him and in Luke chapter 6 we read that he was afraid of John the Baptist. This guy was immersed in fear, and fear is not the best place to make major decisions. Because if there's no backbone, then you're just going to be all wiggly and, and not have strength and decisions that are to be made. And that was the story of this guy, Herod Antipas. And then John the Baptist came before him, this gutsy prophet, and he feared God above all else. And a man who fears God above all else fears nothing else. And so he spoke the truth honestly before John. I mean, before Herod. And he said, this is not lawful. Now, which law was he talking about? He wasn't talking about Roman law. This guy was no diplomat. He, he spoke the truth plainly and clearly. He's talking about the law of God, the Jewish law. As a matter of fact, his primary message was repent. Not too many people are popular with that message. 
In other words, you're headed the wrong direction. You need to turn around before there is a tragedy in your life. Before your life falls apart, you need to turn around. You need to turn toward God. That was his primary message. That was his first message. Repent. You know what the first message of Jesus Christ was? Repent. As you go through the New Testament, there is this message of repentance is necessary. Uh, Acts 3 verse 19, he says, Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. So there's a picture here that before there can be good news, the word gospel means good news, you have to understand there's some bad news. And, and what happens today is we want to get rid of the bad news and go straight to the good news. But why do you need good news if there's no bad news? If there's no sin, why do you need to be forgiven? Why is there a cross if there is not a need for resurrection and forgiveness and for a new start? In order for the good news to mean something, you can't escape the bad news. The bad news has to be presented. It has to be clearly shared. And today it seems like there are many, they want to take the offense away. But Jesus Christ is called the rock of offense. He's, he's the capstone that have made others stumble. Why? Why is that? Because it says the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. Why is there a need for that power? Because we understand that we are weak and unable to be who we're supposed to be. And we need Him. We need His forgiveness. We need that power of Christ and of the cross. Now, you know, with that in mind, it'd be easy to think, well, here's, here's John the Baptist. He knows who Jesus is. So why didn't he just approach Herod Antipas and say, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. This is where you need to go. But he didn't do that. He addressed a moral issue immorality in this guy's case why did he do that i mean he's a king he lived in that world he had complete control whether we like it or not if he wanted something who's going to tell the king no because if you tell the king no you're in trouble right so he didn't hear that word no very often and so here you have this guy who doesn't hear no and yet john the baptist approached him about something that everybody knew happened and among all the kings of that day because they had complete power among, among the others. So, why did he address him? Well, if you look at the history, Herod Antipas' great-grandfather, his family was converted to Judaism. They said, we follow the Lord God the God of the Jews, of Abraham and Isaac and Israel. And so then his dad, although he was the crazy guy, Herod the Great, he grew up among followers of the Jews, worshiping God, and he said, I come from that church. I follow the same God. I believe the same stuff. But the people didn't like him because he didn't live that. 
His life was that of hypocrisy. He said, I'm the good church guy, but he did not live it. He did not follow God with his everyday life. And so his morals did not agree with his talk. So when do we stand up for what's right? I mean, we live in an age where um, there's all kinds of immorality all around us. When do we stand up? Well, I want to use a a quote from Martin Luther King Jr. Um, Of course, who we know went back through the original battles for uh, getting rid of segregation and bringing people together in race. He said that what we do should square up in two places. One is with the biblical mandate. Do we love the Lord our God with our heart, our soul, our mind, our strength? And do we love one another? And then the second area that was of importance is of our nation, of our founding fathers, that we believe all men are created equal and endowed by their creator with inalienable rights, the right of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and that these should come together. And here's the quote from uh, Martin Luther King Jr. How does one determine whether a law is just or unjust? A just law is a man-made code that squares with the moral law of God. An unjust law is a code that is out of harmony with the moral law. To put it in the terms of St. Thomas Aquinas, An unjust law is a human law that is not rooted in eternal and natural law. Well, John the Baptist had his mind made up that what he had to say squared with truth, with God. And so he spoke that truth clearly. And as a result of that, the guy got arrested. Look at our text in verse 3. Now Herod arrested John and bound him and put him in prison because of Herodias, his brother's wife. Josephus, the historian, said he was placed in this prison in one of the palaces of Herod Antipas for over a year. He was placed in a hole in the ground where he would be forced to stay that year until he was executed until he was beheaded as we read in verse 10 which is tragic this still occurs today where people are beheaded or executed and I, I you know have those scenes in my mind on TV of Christians who were beheaded by these Muslim extremists um, just a just a terrible picture of war and you had John the Baptist who would lose his very life for speaking up and clearly telling the truth. And Herodias, she also had quite a dark family history. Um, I read one commentator who talked about one of her ancestors, Alexander Janius, crucified 800 men at a dinner party. And then what what they did for entertainment was they brought in the families of these 800 men and made them watch. So they would live their days remembering the horror of their loved one executed in their sight. So 
certainly we're not talking about either person being somebody you want to hang around with on a regular basis. These were people who were dark, people who did not truly know God, no matter what claims Herod Anthony may have personally made. And yet, the scripture tells us in a weird way, he had a heart for John. Uh, listen, this is from Mark 6, 20, verse 20. Herod respected John, knowing that he was a good and holy man, and so he kept him under his protection. Herod was disturbed whenever he talked with John, but even so, he liked to listen to him. He liked to hear him, but it only went so far. He wasn't ready to make that life change that he needed to make, that he needed to be called to. He didn't, he didn't go to that, that place. It tells us in uh, Peter, the book of 1 Peter, that everyone who lives a godly life will be persecuted. And as you look through the Old Testament, you, you know, you see pictures of that among the prophets. You had Jeremiah who spoke the truth to King Zedekiah and he was placed in a muddy pit. You had Isaiah who ended up sawed in half because of his faithfulness in speaking the truth. You had Zechariah who spoke clearly about it's wrong to worship statues in the temple and his life was taken. Of course, you had Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who ended up in the fiery furnace. And you had Stephen who was stoned to death. You had Matthew, who ended up killed by the sword. Peter, crucified upside down. Thomas, who had a lance stuck through him in India as he preached the gospel. And then in the book of Hebrews, we read about those who followed Christ, were fed to lions, burned at the stake, had a pitch poured over them. Uh, they were used as living torches until their bodies were incinerated in the Garden of Nero. That's, that's a history of the church. And so we think about when the days are ahead and we may have tough times and we're called to be bold. People, people aren't going to do that. The church isn't going to do that. Only the true church. Man, what a conviction for all of us. You know, as I ask myself, God, I want to be part of the true church. I'm, I'm, I'm afraid. And yet God says, I will provide what you need when that moment arises. I ran across this quote as I was studying this week. Uh, someone had said, there will be Afghan Christians who will die this week because they've chosen faithfulness over safety. There will be American Christians who will skip church this week because they've chosen safety over faithfulness. says there are many who will fall away because of the truth of Christ. It tells us in our, in our scripture, in the days that are coming, um, there are many Christians we, I've seen, you know, they, they get all excited and they rise up and then it seems like a week later they disappeared. Um, what happened to them? Um, they're like uh, Alka-Seltzer Christians. Here's the fizz, plop, plop, fizz, fizz, but then they fizzle out just as quickly. Here's a quote from Erwin Lutzer from his book, We Will Not Be Silent. Lutzer writes, boldness comes easily when you're in the presence of someone who agrees with you. It's difficult when you're standing alone in the midst of people who seek your demise. Boldness behind a pulpit's one thing. Boldness in the city council meeting, 
is another. Boldness is seen most clearly when you have burned the bridge that would have enabled you to retreat. We live in a day where although we're supposed to be able to have free speech, certain things can get you canceled in this culture, can get you cut off from certain social media platforms. Not all voices are considered equal. Free speech is for me, not for thee. It appears in some places. And as we look to our northern neighbors in Canada, we already see some pastors who are facing a cost for speaking out the courage and biblical principles. Um, it's considered hate speech. One guy, uh, Mark Harding, was sentenced to 340 hours of sensitivity training by a Muslim, Muslim imam for speaking out against Islam. It was called hate speech. And so he was punished. Guys, we've got to put on our seatbelts. We've got to understand that as the end times approach, things aren't going to get easier. We're going to be called not to be offensive, but to be bold. To be bold in the way that we live. Not to be this to that person and this to this person, but to be God's person. To show his love, but to live with a true sense of conviction. Uh, when God began to move through the Protestant Reformation, one of the places that had the slowest start was England, uh, for whatever reason. And there was one of the bishops who was a fiery preacher, a guy by the name of Hugh Latimer. And he was not afraid to let the truth fly. He caught word that King Henry VIII was going to be at church. And, of course, King Henry VIII was well known for chopping your head off if you made him mad. He disagreed with him. And so he prayed about what he was going to do, what he was going to say, because it's quite a risk. It's easy to start changing your sermon text when you get that kind of information. As he began to preach, he uh, acted like he was having a conversation with himself. And as he looked out the congregation, here's what he said. He said, uh, Latimer, Latimer, do you remember that you were speaking before the high and mighty King Henry VIII? Latimer, be careful what you say. He is able to take your life. Latimer, Latimer, do you remember that you were speaking before the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, before him at whose throne Henry VIII will stand, and before him to whom one day you will also have to give an account of yourself? And Latimer, Latimer, be faithful to your master and declare all of God's word. And he did. And amazingly, King Henry VIII didn't chop his head off. But unfortunately for Latimer, a King Henry VIII's wife did want to execute him. A lady that we know by the name of Bloody Mary in history. So you had Latimer, another preacher buddy, on a stake 
They set him on fire. And his, his buddy is terrified. And here's what Latimer says to him. This is the last words of you, Latimer. Today, we will light such a candle in England that will never be put out. We're lighting a candle that the fires of the Reformation will spread all across England from here. And that's exactly, uh, that's exactly what happened. God lit a fire that he was not able to see in this life as God infused courage into the other believers when they saw the courage of Hugh Latimer and his friend who stood up in the midst of difficulty. Now, I'm not saying God's calling us to be set on fire or any of that's going to happen to us. I, I don't know what's going to happen to me, but I will say the days ahead um, are not going to be as easy for us. I want to close uh, with a verse, 2 Corinthians 3.12, and it will also be our closing verse. Therefore, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. You know, I, I was praying about this verse, and, and I was realizing, here is Paul's talking to the, the church at Corinth. We have a hope. We are very bold. How, how are they very bold? Where does this boldness come from? Where, where does this courage originate? What is the source of the courage? The hope. We have such a hope. And I think what happens to us, I know what happens to me too, guys. We go through the motion years, you know of reading our Bible and, and going to church and, and we go through the motions of doing those spiritual things that are tasks that have to be completed. You know, we want God to see us as good Christians and so we got to do these things. But in the midst of doing all the little stuff, what can happen to us is we can forget the hope. And, and suddenly we find ourselves being quiet. Why? Because we're not thinking about the hope. And we're not thinking about the people who don't have hope. And they need to know there is a hope. And because of that hope, we can't stay silent. We can't stay quiet. But we have to share the hope. And that's where the boldness comes. That's where it came from Hugh Latimer. He knew that there was a hope that he would meet Christ one day. And until that time, he needed to let others know about him. It was critical for that hope. John the Baptist shared because he saw the hypocrisy of this leader and that God wanted something else and somebody had to speak up. And it cost John. And it may cost us. But for God to do what he wants to do among us, he's got to first do something in us. Let's pray. God, um... I'm preaching to me. Uh, Father, remind me of that hope. Give me a clear picture of the hope. Such a hope. Father, I pray for each of us here. Uh, 
Uh, Father, if for some reason someone here does not have that hope, the hope of Christ, the hope of a God who loved us so much that he entered humanity, died on a cross to pay a price that we could not possibly pay, validating the fact that was one, he was resurrected from the dead, lives, reigns, intercedes for us. Father, may that hope give us courage. Father, what do you want to do among us in the days ahead? Uh, maybe tomorrow when we're faced with a temptation to not be bold, whatever that may mean. Uh, Father, remind us of that giant in the land and remind us you're bigger. And so, Father, I just pray you move among us as you so choose. Father, as we give our lives afresh to you, as we seek to follow you, Maybe someone for the first time this morning to trust Christ. Maybe someone else who has been living in that regret and has been haunted from something in their past like Herod Antipas was. But Father, you, you say there's new hope, there's new life, there's always the opportunity for a new start. Just trust Christ. So Father, we come with that in mind as we make decisions for you, whether it's to come forward today to share with your people what you're up to in our lives or whether it's to make decisions where we are and go forward in faith. Uh, Father, we need you for all of it. And so we call upon you to stir us and to move us and to bring revival in our land, Lord, as we move. In your name we pray. Amen.